This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Today we have a, a bit of a surprise. We've got a blast from the past, made human, made flesh, Stuart Baldwin old partner of the podcast has come back for a one-off show in which we'll be talking about something he finds very interesting and we'll be bringing into the life of the practitioner. Although, Stuart, I have to say the topic that we're going to be looking at today seems slightly overshadowed by uh, recent events and the fact that the world seems to be going to shit. But hey, it's always going to shit, I guess. (laughs) With wars here and wars there and all kinds of nasty things taking place. But we're going to we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, AI, and looking at some of the, the characteristics that might be important for the practicing life. Um, Stuart's more of a techie man than I am, so he's going to be handling quite a bit of that side of things. Uh, I'm much more interested in the practitioner and what kind of impact this material might have on that person, that imaginary figure practicing away somewhere and dealing with a you know, the ins and outs and ups and downs of just being a human in today's world. So Stuart, welcome back. I have to say I missed you. It's been a lonely road traveling without you for this last few years. How are you doing? Hey, Matthew, thanks for having me back on, mate. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a while, isn't it? It's, yeah, I've been keeping all right, doing the best I can with things. You know, firstly, I wanted to say congratulations on your publication. And like, I guess indirectly on Glenn's publication on the with the non-buddhist tricycle publication um that's really good that was a nice article i enjoyed reading that it's really good in the centennial episode i want to say thank you um for glenn's shout out and his kind words that's really nice for both of you thank you very much bit of lovey-dovey stuff there huh? yeah we hadn't forgotten about you Stu. even if you forgot about us i didn't <laughs> thank you for the shout out for the old tricycle article yeah this is a funny business it's a little weird being on there, but I guess that was nice of them to, to host my text. And who knows, maybe a few of the old uh, millennial Buddhists reading stuff there will find something interesting to think about with regards to non-Buddhism. Who knows? Anyway, why don't we get cracking? So look, we're talking about artificial intelligence today. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was really your, your kind of thing. Why Why did this seem like a worthwhile topic to discuss to you? What What's what's the burning issue there? Well, the burning issue for me seems very much to be around. Um, we've had the Israeli-Palestinian thing that's just flared up, flared back up again. 
hasn't really ever really gone away as far as I could tell. It just hasn't been in the news and the Israelis have well, they've been doing what they've been doing with it. You know, I'd rather not kind of get into that stuff. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. We've had a lot of climate change this year, this summer, haven't we? Italy's been really hit by it. Whereas the UK didn't really get very much at all. So that that's interesting. And we have a number of bits and pieces with culture wars and all of the stuff that's been going on for everybody throughout the year and also throughout life, right? So what is burning for this, for me, is that it really looks like, it, it, as, as far as I can tell, the best that I've, that I've been able to do with this, and that's been working to get a comprehensive understanding, a working understanding of, of what's going on with this, and how it could be affecting the the world that we operate in, you know, the world that we practice in. What could that do to our understanding of society? How could that affect it? How might that undermine it, disrupt it, you know, alter it, change it, augment it? What's it going to do? And it seems to be a key a key factor. It seems to be something that we kind of have to get right, and if we don't get it right, that we could be in trouble. Gotcha. Uh, that sounds almost immediately pessimistic from the get-go because uh, we human beings are not very good at getting things right. <laughs> right? No, we need a little bit of room for trial and error. But not just that. I mean, we seem to be in an age of stupid in which... Age of stupid? Yeah, the age of stupid in which the brightest minds seem to have given up on actually thinking seriously about things. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you mind if we start with someone who's not at all stupid? Not at all. Just to give a bit of context. Yeah, sure. You might remember old John Gray, uh, the author of Straw Dogs. He's made an indirect appearance on the, the podcast several times. He wrote an interesting article when we first started talking about putting together this episode on AI. He just happened to have published an article more or less immediately after we made that decision. And I don't know how much you know about John Gray, the, the Scottish philosopher, not the, the author of Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. He's both an historian of ideas and a philosopher of ideas. So when he writes stuff, he's always picking up on those two themes, right? How ideas got us to where we, we are and what the historical foundations or roots of them are. And he um, wrote an article about a guy, I wonder if anybody's heard of him. His name is Irving John Good. And he's, um, or he was, I should say, he's a British mathematician and cryptologist. And he worked with Alan Turing. And he was one of the old Bletchley Park codebreakers. I mean, he's interesting for a number of reasons, but this, this is one bit you might quite like. He, he actually cracked one of the code elements there in a dream while sleeping on duty when he should have been awake. <laughs> Which is kind of cool, isn't it? Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that like the DNA, the guy that founded DNA? He had a dream about that and was kind of who discovered DNA and was kind of, oh, I think it's a double helix. Yeah, I mean, it seems to happen quite a bit. I mean, it happens to me all the time, of course. I just, I always forget those dreams. So the genius ability to solve one of the world's problems is there for a second in the morning stew and then it just vanishes. Damn it. Damn it. Not living up to my potential. Damn. Anyway, he was also involved in the design of computers at Manchester Uni and then Virginia Tech. And get this, he was um, also consulted by Stanley Kubrick on the 2001 Space Odyssey film. Mm. Interesting, huh? Right? Yeah. But 
none of that is why old John Gray brings him into his text. Um, and the reason I, I wanted to begin with this is because I think it shares the two kind of extremes that uh, mark much of the kind of discourse about AI at present. So he starts off by thinking incredibly positively about the whole idea of supercomputers. Sure, I'm all in. Okay, so in 1965, right, he had a perfectly logical, but what I would consider rather utopian moment. And he said the following, he said, the survival of man depends on the early construction of a super intelligent machine. The first ultra intelligent machine is the last invention that man needs ever make. <laughs> well, That's 1965, right? It sounds like something that could, right. could, you know, you change a couple of words and it could come out of the mouth of one of these Silicon Valley uh, tech bros. Yeah. Have a listen to this. This was his, his follow-up quote. Okay, so in 1998, he basically suspected that survival, the word survival, would be best replaced by extinction. So he thought in 98 that because of international competition, we cannot prevent the machines from taking over. He also thought we were lemmings. Did this realisation happen on, happen on the tail end of after watching Terminator 2? <laughs> God, who knows? But I just thought it was interesting because he's one of like you know the sort of granddaddies of this whole thing, and and he shifted between these two extremes. And I think at least one of the things I wanna I wanna stick to today as a kind of discipline, and we'll see whether you're up for that or not, because you're obviously free to do whatever you want. But I think this kind of shift between utopian and dystopian fantasies about the role of technology has run its course, or at least I thought it had with the internet, and yet. You know, if I look around at AI, what I'm still seeing is more or less the same stuff. Um, I don't know what your experience is too, but I, I just, it's always full of these over-the-top imaginary ideas that somehow AI is going to fix everything or, or we'll be dead in a few decades. Uh, you know, I've borrowed quite heavily from, as an initial reference point, and also in some of the excellent points that he makes, a podcast with a guy called Daniel Schmachtenberger, and it's a three-hour-long one. And I, the, those points about the internet, about artificial intelligence, about um, dystopia and utopia, it's an interesting thing because we're playing with something that we don't understand. We're playing with something we don't get. So I did a degree in computer networks and had a, a Cisco Systems component built in. So that was a, you know, some really networking component built into one of the modules. I think it was about it was about 20 years ago, you know, that I did the degree. And there wasn't an internet. I remember in my first year of university, there wasn't any internet to speak of. If there was, it was dial-up. And then a, the year later, we had broadband. And there was no understanding of what we have now. You know, there was no way to even begin to look and look at and understand and assess how technology has affected us or would possibly affect us in the 20 years. Now, if, if corporations hadn't got involved, then the internet may be a very different place. You know, there's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer protocols, a lot of open source stuff, which is still there, but it's much more on the back burner. It's much more of a minority of the internet than in, in relation to, you know, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Googles, what have become the major players that have got that ended up with the competitive advantage. This article, I think it's it's on Daniel Schmachtenberger's Consilience Projects. The title is something along the lines of technology is not values neutral, right? Because the argument being 
well, technology is technology is neutral. You know, it could be used for good, it can be used for bad. And what the article seems to be thinking about is is it's saying, well, look, you know, there are first order, second order, third order, nth order effects to something that roll out from it. You know, that emerge from it. That that are the next steps by make from making that decision, like a chess game. By rolling out AI in the way that it's being rolled out, if I'm flat out honest with you, Matt, it's irresponsible. Mm. It's not taking into consideration anything outside of itself, as far as I can tell. And it looks to radically alter the way that we understand life. Well, there was that call, wasn't there, from Noam Chomsky and others to put a, put a halt to the whole thing? They can't. They, it's not. They can't no. put a halt to it. It's too... No. No, of course not. The Google CEO was asked to stop, and he said, well, I can't, because if he stops, if he stops developing AI, open AI, which have got ChatGPT out on the net, that's Microsoft. They've got, they're the people with the controlling advantage in that. Mm. Yeah. If Google stop, then, well, Microsoft have already got ChatGPT out there. I mean, Google have got Bard. You know, there's Facebook. Amazon are going to want one. <laughs> you know, Amazon pushing robots. At the moment, but yeah. there's going to be there'll probably be an AI for that. If Google stop, then they'll go out of business because they'll because they won't have a, a controlling advantage. Well, of course, that kind of excuse though is really just reflective of the fact that governments have retreated from their role uh, to manage uh, serious existential risk. I think it's very easy and convenient for large companies to. But we can't stop, and even if they're not talking about their internal competitors on in the American market, that they would say, well, there's China, right? That's an interesting thing. I don't know if you want to go down the China. No, no, not. Want to go down the, down the yellow brick road of China? <laughs> uh, well, well, if we have to, we'll come to that later. But for now, I, I think it's interesting the, sure. the kind of declarations of self-defense in terms of what can and cannot be done are always self-serving and very often a form of uh, manipulation in themselves. So... I mean, I'm curious about whether uh, we, we need to stop any of this anyway. It depends on how far you want to go down the old dystopian hypothesis uh, route, which I guess you're going to be taking us down to some degree. But um, look, Stuart, I mean, I look at this stuff and I think, yeah, it's another, another wave of technology. But what we're left with is a fundamental problem. And it's the same fundamental problem that's been around since, you know, man picked up a stick and somehow got the fire going it's we're always dealing with ourselves right <laughs> as human beings that have to deal with uh, so-called artificial intelligence and it's human beings that have to deal with the consequences of their own hubris and insecurities and desires driving the direction that that technology will take but um where would you like to go next where would you like to head off to Stu? it really seems to me that we're really not really anywhere near the same world that we were in as when we started the podcast, are we? Things have just changed so much and so quickly. <laughs> they have changed a little, yeah. <laughs> they have a little, yeah. And it makes me think because it's this, th this is some somewhat a feature of technology, you know, the, the exponential curve. And that primarily we're blind to exponential curves because they never appeared in our history in our evolutionary history so we're blind to them so when we look at something and think that we have the time to respond to it we're like oh yeah look we're gonna have time to respond to that 
But what would happen in nature is they would turn into an S-curve. So it, it would look like it was about to go exponential and then it would, it would, you know, it'd curve off and then plateau at the top and then that would be the curve. Nature's full of S-curves. It's not full of very many exponentials. So we don't have an intuitive sense of them. We're actually blind to them, which is considerably worrying when we don't, when there isn't more of a concern about what's happening with technology. But in the spirit of avoiding the fetishization of technology, which we, we really worked to do a lot in the, you know, when we started the podcast up, didn't we? I'd like to put an idea for a title for us, and I'm not sure if it's a working title for you. I'd like to propose the episode title of um, Woke being the cover story for a technocratic near-terminal transhumanistic agenda. What? <laughs> what? What the hell, man? You better explain that. I don't know what you're on about. <laughs> so it's a cover story for a technocratic near-terminal transhumanistic agenda. That's the Ray Kurzweil thing that we're all going to become merged into or technology is going to merge into us. So um, that's what I was just thinking along the lines of just playing around, just mucking around. So you were just making a cup of coffee and that completely far out title just popped into your Dropped head. Dropped into my brain, yeah. Um, why has the work bit got to be in there? I, th I thought we were past that. I, I would like to think that we are. Um, maybe this war stuff will actually knock some sense into these people. It's, if you go down the LGBTQ you know, plus route, then they don't seem to make a biological distinction between masculine and feminine. When robots become maybe more sentient or artificial intelligent, is it just a, a Descartian brain in a box, you know, or, you know, like, what did he say? He said it was a, a demon in a jar, didn't he? Or a spirit in a jar or something. Because they don't make a distinction based upon biology, you know, masculine or feminine either way. That would then give them, you know, like corporations have rights, it would then allow them to say, well, no, you can't discriminate against this artificial intelligence because how do we know? You know, how do we know that it's not whatever X, X, Y, Z? That isn't where the idea came from, but it just, you know, just it, it amused me considerably. considerably. So uh, mm, that's pretty far out there. So you, you, you're making a link between them, one of the core principles of what you might call woke ideology, which I prefer to call the new left ideology. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a little bit more neutral and less loaded. So I would start with that. The second, you're suggesting that the flexibility around notions of uh, gender identity may lead members of the new left to at some point believe that artificial intelligence has a right to exist and the way it exists deserves what? Certain protected uh, rights on top so it would be treated as what some kind of uh, fellow being is that what you were suggesting i'm not really suggesting anything with that i'm just you know, <laughs> playing around possible though i mean it's it, you know i wouldn't put it past them if you look at some of ray kurzweil's stuff he's basically saying that we're all going to end up uploading our conscious there's a bunch of weird stuff around this and I'd rather stay away from that stuff, you know, people freezing their brains, hoping, you know, Walt Disneying their brains and then hoping that they can upload them when we get the technology to be able to do it. But Yeah, you know, John Gray actually had something else to say about that, which may be the, the segue to us moving in a, a more productive direction. <laughs> Rather than the nonsense that's just dropping into my head. <laughs> 
Well, look, he was talking about the singularity at one point in this text. That's an important thing. Yeah. He said the um, the superior species envisioned by techno-futurists are inflated versions of themselves, showing off their cleverness in a never-ending TED Talk, which for some of us is a vision of hell. <laughs> yeah, good words. Yeah, very good. Very, very good. Mm. What do you see? What do you see as the potential problem then with with AI uh, on the near horizon? What have you picked up on? On the near horizon, being the, the the far horizon, we can't actually see past that point of the singularity, right? Because it's like an event horizon for a black hole. Well, I I think the singularity is is ridiculous, but uh... it may be ridiculous. But what does it even mean? I mean, it's one of those ideas that people just get to fit to whatever their fantasies are. And I think John Gray's right that it basically represents their own dysfunction. I mean, I, again, the point I made at the beginning about the idea that the problem with human beings is they, they just can't stand themselves, right? We can't tolerate our own imperfections. And therefore, yeah. our technologies, whether it be religious technology in the form of the Catholic Church or Islam or in mm. Buddhist technologies, they always end up becoming, to some degree, these utopian, dystopian projects, which at heart That's good, Matt. That's good. always wish to remake human beings in an image which generally the person fantasizes is possible, right? It's our, it's our animal selves, which is what John Gray again would say, that we just can't tolerate. So, you know, when you hear these idiots talking about singularities and uploading brains fundamentally at root, that's all driven by an incapacity to accept their flawed humanity, and therefore they deny it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I would speculatively put it forwards that right, if they're atheists, then it's possible that what they're wanting to do is to create some kind of digital god or to become digital gods themselves. Hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't put it past them. It's Yeah, I think Eric Schmidt from Google had a falling out with Elon Musk over this. You know, he was just like, we need to push forwards on this because we want to, he wanted to create a digital God. And why? I failed to understand why. And there was one guy, I think he might work for the Center for Humane Technology. I'm not quite sure. And he was basically saying, if you've got a big circle, just draw a big circle, but like a dinner plate size circle, and draw a smaller size circle inside it, like maybe like a five pence piece, or a, and draw that down in the bottom right hand corner. And he says, that bottom right-hand corner is our intelligence. That's what we understand of intelligence. The rest of the circle is all the other possible types of intelligence that we can have. You've got your neutral and different intelligences. You've got your mad, megalomaniacal, crazy, evil intelligences. And then you've got all the way up to your bodhisattva-level, Buddha-level, God-level, benevolent intelligences, right? And out of all of those intelligences... We haven't got a clue on not only about our own intelligences, right? I'm saying not just intelligence, intelligences. Not only do we not understand our own, we haven't got a goddamn clue on how to create an intelligence that works with our best interests in mind. And if it can get significantly more intelligent than us, because our intelligence is limited by the size of our skulls, right? or the depth of our awareness, or the whatever that might be. That's a conversation in and of itself, isn't it? The size of our brains are limited by our skulls. That puts a level on the top of our intelligence. I think something along the lines of, I'm not sure exactly how they've measured this, but 
they've said Einstein has a an IQ of 160 and ChatGPT has an IQ of 155. So immediately, depending on how we define intelligence, and I'm not sure if you've got something to say about this, Matt, that immediately puts it, makes it smarter than everybody, almost everybody on the planet. Mm. Which is a bit, of an, a bit of an issue, I think. Well, it does depend, obviously, how you define intelligence, which we've, I don't think we've ever managed that well. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing to remember is that whatever intelligence, uh, so-called intelligence chat or GTP or any of these AI systems have, the current form of it, as far as I understand it, is that it's raking human knowledge anyway. So it is a product of us, which I kind of find quite amusing, going back to the point before, that... Um, at least at present, the amount of information that can be produced by AI, even if it's self-generating, is a product of us. It's still us reproducing ourselves in, uh, let's say, the next level of disembodiment, which you could argue is at root one of the fundamental flaws of our species mm -hmm. and the kind of power that we've picked up through the digital the digital layer of reality which we interact with both prior to and, and now with. This uh, again, I'm going to say so-called AI, and I'll say why in a minute. It is us. It's it's still a projection of us. It's not just a projection of these techno futurists and their own neurotic forms of hubris. Um, that's something worth remembering, and maybe it demands of us that we we think a little bit more seriously, which is something that nobody seems to be that interested in doing these days about anything. But maybe we should be thinking more seriously about the whole question of of technology and intelligence and perhaps get better at defining intelligence beyond just IQ quotas. I think so. And then you've got the other issue there, which I think is in the background of all this, which is partly economical, which is what's the value of, of human existence or a human life? Because I think most of us would probably agree that human intelligence isn't just a set of discrete characteristics that people have more or less of or don't have or do have but is intimately related to our capacity to feel and you know experience emotions like compassion and empathy and it's that which actually allows us to recognize ourselves as in a sense more than just animal and now more than just computer right or more than just a construct of disembodied valueless non-emotional um, intelligence. So that's that's another th another thing that comes into this, and I think, I think, yeah. for me, it's difficult not to see people like Ray Kurzweil and the rest of them as just, just more chances, just more, just more in line or uh, in a long line of people who have too much power, not enough intelligence themselves, who suffer from profound forms of hubris, and they don't have a social context which demands that they both maintain contact with their basic humanity, but also connect to that level of, you know, the, the, the collective social reality that they're part of. So I think, I think that's one of the big problems. So if somebody tells me uh, AI has got a greater IQ than Einstein, I just think, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to make that claim? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. It's like how are they, are they measuring it and what, is, what do they mean by intelligence? Yeah, and who's saying it and for what purpose? And what are, they, what, what are we supposed to make of that? Look, I mean, there are lots of other questions that are fascinating in all of this, right? And one Absolutely. of them regards Absolutely. consciousness. 
right? So we still don't know what consciousness is, right? Or rather, we've no idea what it is. We have um, a wide variety of, of of theories about it, but there's no there's no overreaching consensus. And I, I just wonder to what degree that lack of, let's say, consensus at least amongst certain um, parts of the intellectual community, creates space and an excess of of of, of leeway or legroom for figures like these techno-futurists just to kind of get away with um, pushing us towards their own deeply dysfunctional neurotic horizons. Deeply dysfunctional neurotic horizons. Yeah, like the singularity. Like uploading your consciousness. Mm. Like uh, radical life extension by consuming, you know, I don't know, ridiculous numbers of vitamins and minerals every day. It's difficult for me not to just think that there's so much dehumanizing tendencies going on in all this. But hey, this is a good news podcast, isn't it, this episode? <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> tell us something dark about AI, Stu. Come on, tell us a bit more about it. What, what do you think? Well, I, yeah. I don't know about something dark. You're hammering it home to me on how does this relate to practice? Yeah. What has this got to do with practice? How, how does this fit into the, to the practicing life? And I would add by extension to that, you know, practice and engagement with the world. And there are many different ways to say that. And there's no shortage of problems and challenges at the moment. The dark thing that I see with AI is that it's, you know, it's an accelerant and a catalyst for all of the problems that we currently have. Mm. It's not a risk in the system. It's, a, it's an accelerant to all of the risk in the system. When we're playing pretty hard and loose with our consequences, or we're not, you know, it seems that Silicon Valley is. It seems to be. It doesn't mean that it is, but it seems to me to be. They're pretty remorseless with regards to their implementation of this technology and the wide-ranging, wide-reaching, and probably profoundly disruptive effects that this will have. I mean, look at the effects that the internet had, the things that we had absolutely no idea that it would do. And the questions with regards to practice and engagement with the world, whatever that could be, you know, action in the world, social engagement, compassionate action, whatever, you know, there are many ways to say that. But the questions that came up for me were first, power, who holds it, right? Because this will focus power in the hands of the people that own it, hold it, control it, direct it, right? Intelligence, what is it? You know, we've already had a bit of that conversation, haven't we? Reality in the real, what is it? Where is it? Possibly there are more questions that could go with that on the end of that. Truth and truths, who defines it and what shapes it? You know, all of those are really important, right? And those have been questions that I've been interested in a lot of my life. And there are going to be more questions, right? There are going to be more implications of this, depending on what perspective a person takes or wherever a person happens to be at with their practice or their engagement with the world or what they do for work or their family life. The one thing that really, you know, got me talking to you about this, Matt, and, and which I I actually feel is probably one of the most important is this, how do we build wisdom and restraint into our collective systems? into our collective technological systems, whether those technological systems are communism and capitalism, whether it's language, whether it's Buddhist technologies, practice technologies, awareness technologies, whatever that could be, how do we do that? Because that that seems to me to really be 
the leverage point. That's really where my concern is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're basically tying in the, the theme of today's episode into ongoing and what are almost impossible themes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, one thing about the, the context of the new left or the, you know, what woke did in a sense to our collective sense of who we are is it disrupted it dramatically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are lots of people talking about the consequences of the culture wars and whatnot, but it almost feels to me that most of the time when we're talking about those issues, whether you're left or right, for or against, caught up in the, the kind of utopian fantasies of, of social justice movements, or you know, caught up in the kind of dystopian right-wing conservative and then center-left uh, reaction against all that, is they all seem to be missing the point. I feel like we're we're constantly distracted from far more important questions than we're willing to to raise and address. And I think I agree. some of what you were saying is is pointing in that direction. Yeah. It seems to me that one of the big questions that should come out of an observation of the culture wars is is what do we do about the immense dearth of intelligence, you know? Set aside artificial intelligence for a moment. We've we have educational institutions so rather than asking what is intelligence, you're asking why hasn't anybody got any? <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. I might be saying why is there why is um, so much human potential subverted into this bullshit? Whether it be you know the refinement of algorithms, yes, that's different. That's entirely different. Right? Yeah. I remember when I was a bit younger and I was looking at like the nature of just just global capitalism and. Even in my younger days when I didn't know so much about it, it just I found it quite sad that all of these highly intelligent people who were gifted in maths and related topics to economics were just were getting sucked into these jobs whereby they'd just be making money for extremely rich people. Or, you know, you'd have leading the hedge funds. Right. Yeah. Or you'd have leading chemists who'd end up just producing what working on trying to put together the next big money drug for big pharma and you know rather than turn all of that now into a, a yet another critique of, of capitalism i mean if we just stick with that kind of you know human resources dynamic i just thought it's so sad imagine if we took all of the greatest mathematicians out there right and students of economics and we instead of plowing them into uh you know the london financial market or whatever it is we actually got them all thinking about an alternative economic model you know, why aren't we doing that? We let them loose on a problem. Right, exactly. And then you've got the, the, you know, the intelligent folks who recognize the fundamental flaws in global capitalism, and so many of them end up getting sucked into communism. And okay, fine, you can spend your entire life reading Marx and digging out something that somebody missed. But my experience is most Marxists basically just go around complaining about capitalism. They're not putting together a new model for thinking about how we how we move on from the two um, economic systems that continue to dominate our, our imagination collectively. So that's one thing that, that comes to my Absolutely. mind. No, I, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I'm with regards to the meta crisis. Um, one of Jonathan Rosen's points that I uh, I picked out was um, our inability to imagine beyond the imaginary. Hmm. In in a less significant well i guess it depends how you how you measure significant in a less significant way could could explain the 
the bad art, the crap TV, and the shit music mm. you've got, right? Yeah. Um, there are a number of other points to that that come out of this article, um, Taste in the Pickle. Jonathan really made a very good distinction between the imagination, the imagined, and the imaginal. Mm. Not, not, no, not the imaginal line. My dad likes to call that the imaginary line. Uh, hopefully I'm not offending people. <laughs> Second more bore laughs. But the, you know, the imaginal, you know, the archetypal, the, the dreams, that stuff, right? The liminal, maybe that's another way of saying it. Yeah, that just seems to me to be a real, a real failure on our parts, collectively, individually and collectively. Our, our inability to be able to imagine a world beyond capitalism or our inability to imagine a world beyond the dichotomy, you know, the dialectic between communism and capitalism. And maybe anarchy has something to add into that conversation. <laughs> and maybe it is, and I'm unaware of it, which is probably the case. Mm-hmm. The only thing I would add is that this is also a question of ideology. Yeah. So we think about ideology in quite a broad sense, you know, the, the, the ideational landscape is what provides the basic materials that we interact with, right, consciously and unconsciously. And that tends to determine or delineate the lines within which our imagination takes place, right? I, I think there's a unique characteristic of our age, if I can dare say that. I, I don't know if I'm right about this, but this is my, my thought, which is that we... We are in a moment historically in which our relationship with time and space has been radically altered by a few decades now with the internet and now with social media and mobile phones to the point that we have real difficulty imagining not just a a future beyond capitalism or communism or, you know, neoliberalism or whatever is the, the hot topic for whoever's thinking about this stuff. But I think we're we're stuck in a phase in which we have difficulty imagining any kind of future at all. Our our sense of relationship with time and space is so immediate, is so suffocating in many ways, and it's so consuming through our relationship with the digital space that um it's like we're stuck in a kind of dysfunctional present in which the future doesn't exist for us. There just exists a kind of perpetual cyclical present. Yeah, and I think that might explain why we've got not we haven't just got bad art and bad music and bad TV series. Some of it's actually quite good. Um, what we've got is we've got a never-ending reproduction of things that have already been done. Yeah, absolutely. It would be the X factor on the signifier X within non-Buddhism, wouldn't it? Nice. Yeah, you could look at it that way. At that point, then it would be X philosophy or X sociology at this point, right? Or X politics or X film studies. <laughs> never-ending reproduction of the same old same old (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know about you but i mean if we link this back to the practitioner yet again i mean as far as i'm concerned the critique that i've been applying to the world of buddhism and spiritual spirituality more broadly i mean since we started the podcast years back the the one um or the two i should say core themes that have, have just built built and built over that time is, is is really the point about denying our embodiedness. It's this usage of any form of intellectual culture, of any form of spiritual religious practice as at root a practice of transcendence. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and not necessarily healthy transcendence, but actually goes back to that point I, I would reiterate throughout this conversation of our incapacity to accept and face and deal with the consequences of our humanity being animal and material first. Yes. And for me, until we do that, what we're doing is just spinning in circles. I think that if we're going to build a new kind of imaginary space for a real future that could exist in which you know the pre-existing systems of power don't just reproduce themselves and we end up with what techno feudalism it has to it has to confront the fundamental flaw at the root of our thinking and the left is the guiltiest of this at present which is just utopian fantasies right in which we will transcend our physical humanity yeah. i think until we do that we're not going to be able to imagine a real-world material future in which we actually, we're not going to produce perfection in any way whatsoever, but we might actually start to at least address some of the the real underlying issues which we seem to be ignoring through things like culture wars and and, uh, digital distraction. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So the the idea of avoiding techno-optimism and techno-pessimism, or just utopia-dystopia, this is Daniel Schmachtenberger's thinking, and it, it really switched on a warning light for me because this is pointing directly at how do we put wisdom into our collective systems right and and how do we get people working on that because it's really really that really feels like such an important thing so avoiding techno optimism and techno pessimism so if you consider the ai within markets as it currently stands, because AI is driven by market forces, it will it will create catastrophes, right? So there's a there's an open source closed source debate going on censorship. Really, I think as far as I understand it from listening to Mark Andreessen on Joe Rogan, that the people that want to control social media have pivoted and decided that they want to then do the same thing with AI. That's a problem for me, a real problem, because then that really then just becomes the world's best propaganda machine, right? So AI inside markets will create catastrophes, and that's because market incentives will push AI adoption in exactly the same way that Facebook did, Amazon did, Netflix has, whoever, fill in the space with whatever you'd like to, you know, whatever technology company you'd like to fill in there. So the AI will create advantages and efficiencies for early adopters. This is the point where I think I'll introduce Jevron's paradox. So Jevron is J-E-V-R-O-N-S, and then it's paradox, right? And that is that when early adoption and early efficiencies get cancelled out by mass adoption. So think about emails. When people were using letters, if only a certain number of people had access to email, that gives you a significant advantage because it's there in seconds rather than taking days. So if you needed to act on some important information, you could. However, if everybody uses it, then what happens when people go off for a week, they come back to work and they've got absolute ton of emails to go through, right? So that's Jabron's paradox. The early advantages and efficiencies through early adoption get canceled out across time by mass adoption, right? Then the catastrophe, back to the catastrophes bit, is that market incentives will fuel and encourage unsustainable growth and return on investments, which will directly push us faster into planetary boundaries and limits. So that's AI within markets. Mm. 
and then AI outside markets. You're not going to like this one, Matt. All right. AI outside markets will create dystopia. And the reason AI outside markets will create dystopia is because it results in a complete centralization of power and the creation of a single point of capture, corruption, and failure. Right? Nice. Mm. Yeah. And I don't think anybody's even really even considering that as a possibility. No. Well, goes back to the point I made before, I think, which is almost nobody's thinking about a real future. Agreed. We live in a perpetual present, so... I think it's very easy, though, to drift into dystopian thought. You look at the, the failures of democracy, the decline of America, um, the environmental situation we're in. It's very, very easy to end up there. But I cannot but think that a lot of what's going to be the real future is going to be humans muddling through. And that muddling through is a huge piece of human history across all cultures and all time spans. Um... There's also there's some good news here, Stuart. There there is one good piece of good news here. Because a, a AI, yeah, well, because look, there's this um this woman, what's her name again? Um, I think it's Kate Crawford. She actually works for Microsoft and is involved in thinking about the consequences of AI. And she says two things, which I quite like. But she says, firstly, it's not artificial and it's not intelligent. It's man-made, and she said there are a couple of things that you have to consider when, when getting into these thinking processes about potential utopian or dystopian outcomes. One is copyright, and the other one is um, the physical demands on the production of it. So she did a project, and she wrote an article in The Guardian um, about the energy consumption of, of, of the computing needed to produce AI. Yeah, that's why... That's why reasons why it pushes planetary boundary right yeah so we might come up against that and that may end up becoming a, a genuine limitation well, i guess we'll find out but i thought it was interesting because it goes back to the whole point about physical reality always provides constraints that the digital or the disembodied uh wishes to get beyond but can't you know <laughs> there's that and well the in the interesting thing with all of this, I think this is it's a presupposition and an assumption on our part that if there are disruptions to global supply chains and silicon production, that's going to bump this. Right? That'll, bump, that'll bump the the development of this. It doesn't mean that it will stop it um, because if people have got enough money and they've got enough resources, they'll make it happen. Um, but a lot of the silicon production is made in China. And if, uh, if anything goes wonky there, the easy, cheap, readily available silicon that we've got in our computers and our phones, you know, and the stuff that runs the internet suddenly is in extremely short supply. So I don't know if that's mm -hmm. going to happen. I'm not going to speculate here if it's going to or not. As you said, Matt, it all ties back to a physical underpinning, a physical substrate. Mm. Yeah. Well, the copyright issue is is actually quite important, considering that the current form of AI or chat GTP uh, is, you could argue, an extension of the pre-existing technology of Google, right? And uh, Bing and all the rest of it is a parasitic form of technology, right? It scrapes human production, uh, doesn't pay anything for it, and then basically serves it up as apparently free material in the, the same old economic yeah, model that's been driving the internet currently. So... I know that certain authors have started to basically sue OpenAI and other forms 
of uh, chat that say technology, because they said you're you're basically Midgard is another one, right? As stability AI, I've got an image generator as well. Yeah, so it might seem silly. It might seem silly, I think, to a lot of people who are caught up in these kind of again excessive uh, dreams of digital escape. But if you imagine enough companies that produce huge amounts of knowledge content just basically say stop and if you have an organization which although it's weak in many ways has actually been one of the few to sue companies like facebook for theft and copyright infringement you never know it could actually be one of the constraints that ends up becoming a kind of bureaucratic Um, you know, secret card that can be played in order to put real world constraints on the excesses of this form of uh, tech. That's a possibility for you. That would be good. That would be good. It's for us to play devil's advocate. Then there's also an argument on the other side of the table. And I completely agree. You know, if you've created your own work like you have with a podcast, that's your work, that all of that work that you've put in there and then you can go into chat GPT and say, what does Matthew O'Connell think on post-traditional Burnism? Write me a 500-word, 1,000-word article on critiquing post-traditional Buddhism and how, how it could change the face of traditional Buddhism in 50 years' time. And it can do that. There's also a question of what is creativity. is an interesting question to me and continues to be quite a deep source of reflective material, contemplative material, um, as well as what is innovation. You know, what is imagination, creativity, innovation? And there are a number of answers to that. So, you know, creativity, what's creativity? Well, some people say that it's just taking one form of something and combining it with something else. So an example of that could be the iPhone, you know, where you take a phone, a camera, music player, you put them all together, you know, early iPhone, right? And that's a form of creativity. It's a form of combining things in new ways. And some people within the world of AI are saying, yeah, it's creative. You know, look, it can put this and this together and it can do things that we can't. Now, at the moment, it's limited with regards to what we've, we've, all, we've created. And one of my critiques, a heavy critique, actually, on the use of large language models, um, which is what we're talking about, which is what ChatGPT is, what I think stability AI what they use mid 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 journey, I think, is what it is, and others, you know, Google's Bard and that lot, is that they're large language models, and the quality of the material that gets output from that is dependent upon what the training data is. So, if ChatGPT's training data is all of the internet, that's all of the good, all of the bad stuff that we've put on there as well as it not just being signal it's noise as well so wouldn't you get a better system if you just trained it on signal rather than the noise that we put out there too so the question is what are you what are you developing this language model to do what are you developing this ai to do isn't this complicated yeah yeah i'm not quite sure what to do with the information you've just shared um noam chomsky had a few interesting points to say about this obviously He's he's be, become more well known, I think, in the, in the general populace for being a, a certain form of left wing intellectual. He's a language guy, though, isn't he? And he's, this is, he's a semanticist. No, he's a syntacticist, isn't he? Rather than a semanticist, he is certainly one of the, the let's say the last century's most important linguists. Mm-hmm. 
if I remember correctly, his work is about generative grammar. And he has this idea that you, there's an infinite number of, of forms that we could generate. Uh, I think he's also one of the guys that thinks that there is a, a language component in the brain. So there's a physical component related to language. But um, yeah, he was talking about the talking about AI as a large language model. And he was talking about some of the limitations of it and some of the potentials. But he certainly reiterated this point that it is raking the world's pre-existing knowledge and combining it. Yes. And that's what it does. And of course, we can't forget that often AI just makes shit up. I mean, I've had this experience too. I did an experiment in one of my, my classes in which I asked it um, to come up with the 10 most popular phrases of Triestino, which is the local dialect here where I live. And half of them don't exist and have never existed. <laughs> they call them hallucinations, don't they? Well, they, yeah, which again is, is quite a name, but I mean, bullshit, I think is more appropriate. Bullshit works. <laughs> but if we think about you know, this is just the accumulation of systems of social practice which have been dysfunctional for quite some time. And if we think about the impact of the preceding technology, which is social media, fundamentally, and mobile phones, but mobile phones, of course, I mean, they're interesting to think about, but what they really are in terms of our physical relationship with them is they are the transportation of a constant digital companion. And in that sense, I think they're actually far more interesting for the practitioner yeah. because what they symbolize is the, um, let's say, the filling up of any kind of space in which uh, whatever, sexual companions, right? Um, there's this interesting uh, service somewhere in Eastern Europe. I remember seeing a, a video about on the BBC last year. And I'm sorry, but I've completely forgotten the name. But it basically creates an avatar and the avatar is built on the characteristics of somebody you've lost. So let's say you've lost a boyfriend or girlfriend to cancer. You can actually get this company to build an avatar of that person. And by using some of the same technology that's currently be using, being used for generative AI. Yeah. And that companion, you pay a monthly fee and it comes around with you, right? It's on your phone. You can actually, it's really quite sick. But you sit down on a beach and you can have a conversation with somebody who supposedly represents your ex-boyfriend who just died from cancer. And I just keep thinking if, if, that's, if that's where we go with this, it just keeps going back to the point I made. We cannot accept our humanity. And this is just yet another means for avoiding it. Yeah. We can't accept boredom. I think it is because we've got a lack of imagination. Well, there's no need for it. Isn't, isn't imagination, in a sense, a product of the effort we put into engaging with like the real authentic experiences of our lives. That's one way of thinking about imagination. Pretty much. What are we tapping into? How are these people dreaming DNA double helix? How are they, How is that guy dreaming of cracking a cryptography code at Bletchley Park while he's asleep? But what are we tapping into? Yeah, well, that's that's that that's a can of worms, there, Stuart. I know, it is, <laughs> but that's and I'm not. I'm not even my can opener's broken, so I'm not. I'm not going there. If contemplating what intelligence is, that's where I'd like to point my finger. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. The IQ is important because if you're stupid and you can't put a sentence together, that's useless. <laughs> but it's it's you know if you can't articulate 
or share ideas or communicate how you're feeling, then that's a problem, right? So there has to be a certain level of cognitive intelligence at play. Mm. My feeling is it has its strengths, has its weaknesses. The cognitive behavioral stuff is all focused on rational, seems to be all focused on rational solutions. And we're not rational, we're very much non-rational. Yeah, it's interesting the point about cognitive intelligence, because we also find that one of the consequences of the younger generations growing up with these digital devices, more or less becoming an extension of their, their physical but also emotional bodies, yeah, they also become an extension of, I think, their imagination. Yes. Because yes. the relationship they have with their phones, you could argue, is far more intimate than their relationship with anything else. Yeah. This is what, what I was going to jump in with just now about the the company that, that can resurrect lost loved ones in the form of paid subscription service. Because if you start to do that, then you're not going to... I would imagine that there would be some people that wouldn't let that go ever. That's really quite a sick form of revenue. There's there's another guy, Jordan Peterson interviewed him, actually. It's one of the interviews I listened to around AI to understand it. It's a guy called Brian Rommel. I found the conversation between him and Jordan really quite unique because what Brian's saying is he's saying what will happen is if AI gets to where they believe that it's going to get to, AI will be a constant companion for them, like our phones are now. I mean... 30 years ago that was that was not not thinkable so where we'll be in 20 years time who can say he was saying that somebody that's eight nine or ten that that ai will know will, will know that person's preferences better than anybody else in their life because they've been with them the entire their entirety of their lives and that what shapes us the experiences that shape us in the world what we consume or what we selectively choose to partake in. That may be a better way of saying it. And if the AI that's with us for the entire of our, of our lives is shaped by us as well, it, it will become like us. You know, it doesn't mean that it is, it is us, but it would have it would have had all of the experiences that we've had too. And so when we pass away, that that would then be when we die that, that that would then be something that somebody could go back to and then they'd be able to say what would you know what would Stuart think about this Re replay you know the two or three of our best moments that we had yeah um because he's talking about a physical box that you would have rather than it being a cloud and the joke is that the cloud is really somebody else's computer right mm-hmm so they were having a really a really good conversation about um, cryptography and, you know, probably blockchain would be involved. Mm -hmm. There seem to be two, two ways of looking at this, right, from where we are. Mm -hmm. What do they look like? Well, I think the first one is in one in which there's enough stability and continuity with the existing social structures we currently have. Uh, maintaining themselves to some degree and therefore a future in a sense is latched onto that. The second one is that the events taking place around us from global warming to the clear limits of global capitalism and the decline of jobs and the, the importance, let's say, of human beings, 
ends up producing trigger points that seriously undermine the the structures of the last century and they can no longer continue. In each of those, there are interesting, I think, speculative ways of, of reflecting on what, what are the consequences and what will they involve. I think the dystopian one is problematic just because it's so extreme. It does produce a return to some form of barbarism. And, you know, uh, what's that, that phrase again? Um, techno-feudalism, in which people with extremely large amounts of money would retreat into ever-detached communities from the wider world. This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast, and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools. Well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent, or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship, and if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom, although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.
And it's funny because our current moment as it is right now in 2023 reflects both of those potential futures already existing. If you look at the immense decline that's taking place in pockets of American cities, for example, they are already dystopian futures, right? Whether it be uh, the crack addicts or the fentanyl zombies, you know, who are two streets away from techno uh, gurus living in, you know, $5 million apartments, mm. uh, taking uh, all of these pills to prolong their lives, you could argue that is the dystopian future already. Yeah, LA and Vancouver jumped on. Right. And the same for London, right? Uh, and then if you look at, I don't know, a city like the one I'm living in, there's a certain amount of, of, of stability. It's not, not a bad city. It's, it, it's functioning. And the way the technology is impacting the society here is much, much tamer, much calmer. And it, it almost represents a future in which the fundamental issues are not dystopian but are rather coexistence and, and what we do about these perennial questions of our basic humanity, our coexistence, uh, the meaning of life, and what it means to, to live, yeah, and find value as a, as a social being. And I think we can come up both of those, um, but there's only one that we can really come to from the perspective of a practitioner, because the first one, if you're the fentanyl junkie, or if you're fighting for scraps on a, a rubbish heap somewhere in Africa or Central America, um, because that's the only opportunity you have apart from migration, then you you live in a you live in a hell realm. You know, you live in a hell realm to the point where there is no possibility of practice. One because addiction is so profound that your entire, you know, psychophysical being is utterly absorbed into addiction. The other one you are struggling through so much hardship that there's no space even to get get perspective on on what you're going through and i mean part of me is odd Stuart, but part of me kind of finds a certain amount of um relief in that perspective obviously not for those people but because it does it does reflect the possibility at least that in certain parts of the world it is possible to practice whether that be a so-called spiritual practice or it be, you know, a political practice or an intellectual practice. And mm -hmm. um, for me, let's say in the stabler side of the, the current world we inhabit, I think there are some pressing challenges that we can engage with and we do have a certain amount of room to move. Yes. And one of those is addressing questions of, well, what's, what's discarded or what's lost when we have so many people living in a, a perpetual present. And I, I think there's a good phrase here, if I can remember it. Hold on. I think it's pseudo-cyclical time. I don't know if you've heard about this. Pseudo-cyclical time. Yeah. And pseudo-cyclical time is, is something like an eternal present. So everything now. And it feels like there's a certain passage of time, but at the same time, it feels like we're in a, in a stasis. Because it's, it becomes a, um, isn't it the panopticon? Isn't that the thing? Where it's almost like a sorry for not being able to articulate that as well as you just did. Um, it's a continual point of reference, and that there isn't much impermanence with it. That it's continually there, and because it's continually there, it holds our identity in place in a certain way at the same time. Sound fair? That certainly makes me think about another piece. Um, you could argue that the you know social media and the mobile phone is basically a a form of that, 
Right, I think that works. But this this relationship with time is interesting because you know I work with with teenagers from high school and university, and I would say that they are in a sense stuck in a kind of collective state of stasis, and they find it very very difficult. And I don't think this is due to any fault of their own, but they find it very very difficult to address a couple of issues. One is time, and this um. The, the, the perpetual present which they're absorbed into, which, by the way, if you don't know, and you, you probably know this, but it's worth mentioning again, one of the consequences of digital nativism is that it eliminates emotions like boredom. It eliminates not just boredom, but it creates um, a kind of pseudo-emotional stasis in which they are constantly maintaining their emotional state through stimulation, through social media and video games and so forth. So it does perform that function of creating a kind of derealization. It rewires the dopamine system of the brain as well. Yeah, exactly. Bravo. The other consequence, which I think is where we might go next in terms of how we practice with this stuff, is that it creates um, a form of incredible difficulty with regards to the concept of authenticity and what it means to be authentic. And because obviously, I mean, if you look at the world around us, one of the other consequences of the digital realm is that it produces um, a form of alienation from the physical, right? So the physical is always mediated through the digital. Yeah. Even, you know, whether it's a, a people walking down the, the street, right, staring at their screens or sat on a on the underground train or whether it's, you know, constant digital updates through a smartwatch. I, I don't think this, this is an overstatement to say that this is a form of, of collective derealization. And I think the question, when, when we put it that way, is, well, the practice question would be, what's the other side of that? What's the alternative to that? So there's an alignment problem, and that is how we align AI. I'm doing what I can to line this up with what you've just very well said, Matt. So we've got an alignment problem that connects into the what you were call, what you were talking about, digital natives, and a collective. Did you call it derealization? Yeah. With direct relation to that. So we haven't come to terms with AI version one. Well, what's AI version one? We we know it. We just maybe not know it in that terms, which is social media, AI that specialises in content curation. It curates and presents according to a predefined algorithm. And that algorithm has been called, I'm pretty sure this won't be new to you, Matthew, and that's, it's been called the race to the bottom of the brainstem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we would be naive to think that the people that want control of that and the algorithms that play with that would not be uninterested in doing exactly the same thing with artificial intelligence. They're not going to let it roam free. There are actually problems to open source AI, to an open source AI. I thought that open source would be the way to go, but actually I think it's probably containment if we can um, after listening to people. I'm a big fan of open source, but I'm not so sure that we need to open source this. Maturity comes into play. Motive comes into play. If everybody has access to it, what would happen if Israel and Palestine had access to that type of AI? Just too sad for me to contemplate right now, so I don't really want to. So AI version two will obviously stack directly on top of our existing infrastructures and technologies. They're going to be an extension of what we've already built. 
And that AI is an AI that specializes in content creation, whatever creation is. What is creativity? Where, where does it sit with regards to copyright? Is it genuine creativity? Is it genuinely intelligent or is it just, you know, large hadron collider smashing things together and coming up with a number of different things, right? Regardless of what the answers to those are, if we follow through where the technology is going to evolve into, and that is going to be content curation, which we currently have, plus content creation, which is coming online as we speak. If it's not already online, it will continue to evolve, definitely. Plus multimodal capabilities. So what are multi multimodal capabilities? That's basically text, images, audio and video. So it's not too far a leap of imagination to consider that it will at some point in the future be possible for us to be able to create our own videos with audio. We'll be able to create our own podcasts without them actually being real people involved because they can already do it with text and image. You know, it's simply bits and bytes to a computer. It's not going to be too much of a jump. If you put text and image audio and video together, then you really do have either one of the best educational tools and technologies that are available, which would probably obsolete schools if it was used properly, right? Institutional schools in terms of having to sit in the classroom all day long, right? Or it's the world's best propaganda machine. There's somewhere in the middle. So it, it, it has a great deal of potential, but it also has a really dark side to it. But the problem with that is especially if we start to look at the silos that we're in uh robert anton wilson called them reality tunnels yeah if we look at the the way that people seem to be unable to agree on pretty much anything and we add that technology into the mix i can't seem to see any other conclusion unless we do it properly and it's been pushed so quickly i don't and the exponentials involved is the only conclusion that I seem to be able to reach and that other people have reached as well is that it will break relational trust. Which is already done, of course. <laughs> of course, it will just accelerate it. This is why I'm saying it's not a, yeah. it's not a risk within the meta crisis and it's an accelerant mm -hmm. and a catalyst mm -hmm. to it. Yeah, which ties nicely with that, the point I, I made from the beginning, right, which is just the fact that this is always building on our humanity in all its flawed glory, which is both, I think, the the grounds for having some sort of hope in the possibility of us navigating, you know, the yet again problems that we, we end up facing. And it's also the, the deep disappointment because human history has shown that everything happens, right? It all happens. We get the best, the worst, and everything in between. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess the question from a practical perspective for the, the big thinkers out there is, will we find a way to navigate this this content, this technology in this phase of, of human history without destroying ourselves, right? Which is the concern that comes up when you start talking about global warming and nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And in one way, the answer is nobody knows. Everything's possible. And so the practical question to that is, well, what should we do? What can you and I do? What can we do as practitioners and as social beings that are part of communities where we actually do have at least some 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 say, right? Because we live in democracies and even though they are deeply flawed, 
et cetera, et cetera. Um, there is some affordance for interacting and producing not just dialogues like this, but but certain sets of um, practices that we can enact through our own lives. Yeah. And maybe, look, I mean, we've been going at this for a while. Maybe we can um, spend the last yeah. period bringing it back to the practitioner because I think so. Yeah. there are some very interesting people who might help us. Would, would you like to hear about them? Yeah, I would. There is a group I'm currently studying for a chapter I'm putting together for a book I'm working on. And one of them I've spoken to you about before and people will be familiar with. The other one is is less well known, but really fascinating. They have a set of practices which I think would actually still be relevant today. And they could be placed alongside a contemplative practice, a meditative practice. The The group was called the Situationists International. And they were around in the 1960s in France and were part of the cultural revolution that took place there. The, the most famous chap that comes out of it is a guy called Guy Debord, who wrote a book called The Society of the Spectacle, which was really interesting. And I mean, there's loads of stuff you can find on the internet if anybody's interested. But the, the Society of the Spectacle was, was several things. One thing was, um, it was the application of Marxist theory to thinking critically about uh, emergent society with television and with the economic boom after the Second World War. That's its kind of historical location. The second thing, though, it, it, this guy Guy Debord is, is really a genius. I mean, he's absolutely fascinating. He really seemed to be far ahead of his time in, in applying creative thinking. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to one of the points I raised about imagination that you picked up on too, he was a person who was capable of thinking beyond his present. You know, he was a bit of a prophet in, in that sense. But one of the nice things about him, despite um, what you or I might think about uh, communism and, and uh, Marxism, uh, and I don't want to go down that road at all, thank you very much, but it, it has to be mentioned that he was part of that world. Either. Yeah, is that he took this Marxist critique of capitalism, applied it to his current age, but instead of being one of your run-of-the-mill uh, communist bores, the sort I grew up with, or Marxist intellectuals who like to think a lot and often don't do much. <laughs> Sorry, folks, I'm sure those of you out there are very partial to those two realms or the other type. But he, he was part of this group in France, and they combined their critique of society with art and with action and with what is called today activism. Um, and they came up with a few theories. They came up with a few ideas for how you can actually practice disruption to this emergence of the society of the spectacle. So the society of the spectacle, on, on the one hand, like I said, is, is a kind of recognition that society was dramatically changing and it was dramatically shifting the relationships of people with the society around them. And it was turning them into alienated, passive participants, which should resonate with what we've been saying so far. So within that, that purview, um, citizens were passively receiving models for how they should exist in their lives. So they were no longer, let's say, the creators or the producers of modes of shared being and even individual being, but they became the passive receivers through the spectacle Okay, of these models. And through that, they were alienated from their own humanity, which again should resonate with what we were saying before. And they were alienated from each other, um, from the physical production of the world around them. 
uh, the economic reading will you know return to the sort of Marxist themes of capital, production, wages and whatnot. That's less interesting for me. What's more interesting is this idea that he was already noticing how our relationship with a screen actually produced a form of alienation from the material reality out there, meaning the external physical world, also within our relationships with other physical beings, humans, but also with our own uh, relationship with our physical self. And then you've got this Jean, uh, what's his name, Baudrillard, whose name I can't pronounce, who comes up with hyperreality. I'd like to chip in there. I can't pronounce his name. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I mean, this surname is ridiculous. <laughs> Jean Baudrillard. <laughs> That's a difficult French surname, but even the French struggle with that, I reckon. The French are just difficult full stop. <laughs> they probably do. They do. The French are specialised in being difficult, which you've got to love them for. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Yes. I can, I can attest to this. You can attest. What's the point? What comes out of all of this? And it's a very long discussion, and I won't go further into the history of that, but they produced a set of practices that were disruptive and that sought to um, step outside of this, this digital realm, right? Which for them was a, a, an artificial social space mediated through society and our roles in society as, as kind of part of a spectacle. So if we say that we now live in a world in which all of that is on steroids, the basic principles still remain the same. That's only going to increase. Yeah. But, you know, the other side of this is that there's a horizon in which we were moving towards this new level of alienation, which the millennials were really inserted into at quite an early age. And the Generation Z, a lot of them were born into that reality, and therefore we have at least some faith in humanity, which very few people seem to have these days, is part of the potential for that generation to actually develop new forms of artistic creativity that are a creative response to the challenges that AI represents as just a more intensified version of alienation. So some of the themes that Guy Debord and his mates came up with were quite simple. You know, one of them was like aimless wandering. Is that like being a flaneur? I don't know that word. I mean, the idea is that you wander through the city and you experience the city as what's called a psychogeography, meaning that the spaces of the city, we tend to relate to them in familiar patterns. So, you know, I, if I leave my house, I go from here to the supermarket. I go from here to work. I go from here to pick up my kids, right? I develop these routines of inhabiting the physical space that become psychological, emotional spaces too, or feeling spaces. And their idea was that you just disrupt that by aimlessly wandering around and exploring these psycho-emotional spaces and how they impact you. And the other thing they sought to do was to resurrect or explore the possibility of reclaiming authenticity from these spheres of dehumanizing practices, whether that be consumption which, of course, in, in that decade, the 1950s, 60s, and onwards was all about material wealth. But now we might call, we might say it's all about digital wealth and the accumulation of image, right? And the other thing, he said that instead of being, you know, we were all into having. So like the, the collective drive that was pushing everybody was not about being someone, but it was having things. And in a sense, you could argue that what we're in now is a space, a collective space of trying to become something. But what we're trying to become is an image of something that doesn't exist. Some of the, the filters that TikTok and that lot have come up with are absolutely... Right, good. 
the sort of antidote to that is what? Reclaiming what we might call simplicity, reclaiming forms of recognition that basically set aside any kind of digital interaction, any kind of artificiality. And I want to put this out there as, as like a tiny, tiny little drop of hope. But I am seeing that some of the Generation Z students I have, you know, are entering uh, the first year of university. There is a certain amount of consensus, which is they are recognizing the harm, irreality that digital life represents. And so there is a certain recuperation of, of, of some of the, at least the social spaces in the city where I live, where all of that's set aside. So we've got these Ozmitsa, which are these local institutions whereby people go and they, they sing the old songs, they play guitar, they drink and they eat local produce. It's very cheap. It's not classist at all. Anybody can go there. And this might sound like a kind of silly thing, but it's actually not, you know, because this in itself is the... Sounds like a good thing. Right. It's the institution of social practices which are by their very nature a refusal of the inauthenticity that's proposed by ever deeper submersion into this kind of perpetual pseudo present in which nothing is really real it's all possible but nothing's actually there exactly i think we got hijacked we don't really even realize that it happened until we realize that it's happened so Planner, a French noun referring to a person, literally meaning stroller, lounger, saunterer, or loafer, but with some nuanced additional meanings, including as a loanword into English. Flannerie is an act of strolling with all its accompanying associations. So mm. roam freely wherever he wants without aim or objective. Yeah, I think it resonates. I found the word in my notes here. It's called the deri derive or the derivé. Not the derrière. No, <laughs> no derivé. <laughs> Sorry, French listeners. I, I I can't pronounce French. I could I could I can say it with a French accent if you like. Derivé. Does that sound convincing? <laughs> I think it just fixed the problem. It sounds much more convincing than mine. I think. But it's this idea of reintroducing like playfulness. I think one way of thinking about it is playful, constructive behavior, but it's married to this notion of awareness, right, of these psychogeographical effects that mm -hmm. being in any kind of space has on you. And again, you could, you could argue that this would be an interesting form, not of mindfulness, right, but of experientialness. Uh, mindfulness is often steeped in the discourse of the observer, right, where I step outside and I observe. But we don't need that. We don't need people being alienated from their experiences and observing from afar. Um, what we really need is people participating more fully in their embodiment and in the physical environments and spaces they inhabit, you know? Yeah, I agree. One of the, the simple uh, defenses against the claims of, you know, these techno-futurists is that we need to resist their, their dystopian fantasies. And in part, we can do that by just actually enjoying and appreciating and experiencing life. <laughs> you know, it can be that simple. That's not all there is, of course, but inculcating the recognition of, of power of the simplicity of experiencing the world, you know, as a living space rather than a digital space that's mediated through technology is part of the resistance. Going back to a point we were discussing before with art, I think this, Stuart, I think I'm going to guess you're going to agree with this, but if you think about it, one of the root problems of like what we're seeing in Western culture is narcissism. It's the incapacity for people to actually cultivate an experience of themselves that isn't centered in on, in on the self. 
which itself is stuck in this perpetual present. So certainly, um, if we think about like the, the psychological, emotional maturation of people within society, re-establishing a sense of the future and the past has to be a priority in terms of how we imagine the educational system and how we imagine culture. And we have to disrupt this, um, this industry, which is centered in on the narcissistic self, which of course is the aperture, right, the apex of capitalism, neoliberalism writ large, which has produced this subject which centers itself in the world in a perpetual present in which it remains infantile. It's basically seeing and experiencing the entire world as a mirror to itself, you know, whether it's the computer screen, the, the mobile screen, or the feedback loop through what you were talking about before with the first generation of AI, or social media and its mores. If we want to at least cultivate the possibility of the younger generations and then the future generations creating a world, because of course they have to do it and we have to help them along with that, that will be resistant to techno-feudalism and the fundamental flaws of our current age, that has to be front and center. We have to disrupt the narcissism of our age. And, you know, social justice, it should help with that, but it doesn't seem to in many ways. Yeah, I see that as working within the how do we build how do we build wisdom into our into our systems? Right. You know, how do we build wisdom into our systems? I've got a few ideas of what that could reflect on within practice. One of Daniel Rosen's points was the um, problem, one of the things within the meta crisis, and there's no consensus on what it is. There's a number of different things, which is why he wrote the article. Um, but I handpicked a number of things from this. So one of them is the, the philosophy of education, which really resonates with failing to learn how to learn. Mm. And that's really, really important one. So look, Stuart, as we move into like the last phase of this conversation, which I mean, we've touched on a lot of different things, the topic is very rich and, you know, we can't cover it all. Uh, hopefully there's some interesting bits here and there for, for listeners. But I, I would like us to, uh, to finish up by talking about practice a bit more. I mean, we took this idea from Guy Debord, which may surprise some listeners. And there's a certain innocence to all that. But I, I can't help but feel that because... Because one of the key problems with the digital landscape, and again, I'm, I'm thinking of AI as an extension of what's already begun. One of the keys there, which is a concept that Guy Debord actually picked up already, is that reality is turned into a representation, right? And because representation becomes reality, it produces a, a state of collective uh, hallucination or illusion, which we live inside, right? I'm stuck in it. Yeah, we're stuck in it, exactly. So it becomes a kind of, of, of self-fulfilling prophecy which we live inside and we keep reproducing. So one of the keys to practice which will resonate with Buddhists is, is, is looking at not only the question of authenticity, not only the question of wisdom, but how we break through representation into some experience of something which is rawer and cruder than the representations projected by the dominant society that we live in. Now, Tom Pepper from the SMB site would talk about that in terms of ideology. He would argue that we're always stuck in ideology. Ideology, in this case, for our purposes, could be yet another name for a kind of representational system which we live inside, 
I mean, my argument about that has always been that that there is no total capture. Total capture doesn't exist, uh, which is good news, which is why there can never be a, a total utopian or dystopian possibility. There's always there's always leakage. There's always our imperfect humanity which breaks through. We're never fully plugged into the Matrix, to a reference John. Right. Sure. Just call him John. Johnny, Johnny, Johnny B. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, his his mate Guy, Guy D. <laughs> dear, dear. But um, yeah, I mean, you you mentioned the word you mentioned the word wisdom, and I I want to give that back to you because look, I I sound like an American when I say this, but I, I tend to return to some form of pragmatism, not philosophical pragmatism, but the kind of run of the mill, be practical. If you talk about wisdom, a lot of people don't really know what that means. Mm. And a lot of people speak about it in a representational manner. So they say wisdom is X, Y, or Z, but then you can always find examples which disprove that. And it turns out that even most Buddhists, when they talk about wisdom, what they're really talking about to some degree is indoctrination or a belief in some kind of universal basic goodness, which if we all just plug into, will somehow you know, make us all think in the same way and feel in the same way. But as you well know, one of the fundamental flaws of progressive liberalism is it's, it's rooted in that naive belief that we're all basically good and it's society that corrupts us. And if we could all get back to some kind of you know, pre-socialized state, we'd all actually be, well, oddly enough, just like them, progressive, liberal, middle-class, nice people. And it's not you know, a surprise that many, many Buddhists are exactly in that space. So when you talk about wisdom, I mean, wisdom could be many, many different things. It could be a form of violent disruption to stupidity. It could be a form of violent disruption to the complacency of a group living inside a kind of digital representation. It could be a violent disruption to the narcissism of living in a forever present. You know, that to me sounds like it could be wisdom as much as the capacity to actually look at somebody and have empathy and connect to the underlying themes that are actually playing out and not just rely on the superficial. So what what would you do with that, Stuart? Because, you know, I'm going to get you to resolve all the big problems today. Thanks. Thanks very much. Well, I've had some time off. So I mean, what, what else was I doing other than working on that question? <laughs> Could you condense it down into just a really good soundbite for me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What the uh, fuck are you going to do about the question of wisdom, Stuart? What am I going to do about the question of wisdom? Okay. So there is an importance of the question around wisdom, we were wondering earlier, you know, about intelligence. What is intelligence? What are intelligences? There's clearly different forms of intelligence that exist within us. And when we're considering the importance of wisdom plus intelligence, it's a number of things that fought me from different talks. This came from the guy from um, Deep Minds. So basically, this guy came out with this and just dropped it out of his, out of his mouth. And it's basically, it was like, if if you're talking about disruption, if you're talking about returning to raw experience, well, then there's something on the other side of that equation that they're also working on as well. And if it's being driven by market forces, which we know we both know that it is, it then becomes the case that intelligence, the intelligence that has created all of our systems to date, language, capitalism, communism, all of the technologies that we currently have has been created by a certain type of intelligence. There's a book, it's called The Master and His Emissary by uh, Ian McGilchrist. Intelligence, not wisdom, not intelligence and wisdom, is a new form of capital. 
And the reality is that pretty much every company nation state is going to be racing to get their hands on it. And with regards to wisdom and intelligence, this is one of the things that Daniel Schmachtenberger said as well, and which really, really also resonated quite deeply with me, is, is that culturally it looks like we have lost the understanding that both the traditional and the progressive are not oppositional stances that one has to win over the other. It's that there is a very deep relational dynamic between them, that there is a tension, a relational tension between them that forms a deep dialectical tension. And that traditionally, you know, historically, not traditionally, historically, that these two forces have worked together to create forward momentum, which would be the progressive stance, plus wisdom, which would be in the form of the traditional stance, and that wisdom in this particular case is a restraint, right? It's a, it's a, it's an understanding that there are some things in the world that we don't fuck with, that we don't tinker with it, because it could go horribly wrong, and that's what I see people doing with AI. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's become a dysfunctional form of codependency, though. Yeah, it, it does feel like we're in a. We're in an age or in a phase in human history in which we have to... Well, I would say it this way. Let me start again. Um, I would say that that dynamic you're talking about, I mean, that's... I think Jordan Peterson, who obviously some of our listeners will not be happy uh, hearing mentioned, but if we set aside the kind of social justice stuff and his, the phases of his career, there are two, I think, very interesting contributions he does make, and one of them has been that, right? He's tried to ask questions about well what is what is the relationship between the more dysfunctional left and the more dysfunctional right and he recognized as as many of us did that the more dysfunctional far left has never really been severely critiqued because the the majority of let's say public intellectuals over the last few decades have been fundamentally on the left not on the right which I think is testament to the, the failings of conservative thought and the sort of dying off of a generation of, of conservative intellectuals uh, across the West. Um, that's one issue. The, the second issue is that I, I just kind of feel that, you know, the right basically came to its, its end in terms of what it was and just became a kind of deeply dysfunctional political force in Britain, for example, we don't really have a conservative party anymore. We have a neoliberal group of um, international figures who have no commitment to the nation state. I like that you brought them up. I, I was yeah. reading Jonathan Rosen's article, and it was talking about where are the poets and the rishis? How's that? Don't know that word. What's rishi? You know, you know, rishi. What's a rishi? And it's like know. a it's like a visionary or a poet. And our prime minister yeah. is called Rishi Sunak, and I was like, "That's a joke, clearly." <laughs> what a letdown! <laughs> no, yeah. he's, he's not. He's not. Yeah, yeah. You know, if like if refuge names are not prescriptive, they're aspirational. Then clearly, he's not living into his name, is he? <laughs> no, he's not. Okay, well, he's no, not. he's not. He's no, really he's not. not. Yeah. yeah. Just to finish off that thought, the point I think is that. I think uh, Jordan was right in his in his call to critique uh, the excesses of the far left. Absolutely, and that's before all the political stuff started. Yeah, I agree. So don't, don't panic, everybody listening to this. But I I think the other interesting point, at least from my perspective, is that I think the right basically is dead, 
And I think the left is now dead. And what we have is a kind of space in which we have no no real ideological thrust. I mean, we can call the the new left ideological, but it's ideological, I think, in 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 a kind of uh, final phase of the of the dysfunctional expression of the consequences of history. If you look at a lot of the the, the reality denial, right, the obsession with self hatred, which uh, demarcates the space of much of the left wing political thought. My view is that it's just the death. It's it's like the final death thrills of progressive liberalism and what we need is is a bit like what we need with the economics we need our greatest minds not sucked into tribal warfare but into seriously contemplating you know uh the future i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more on that point you're right and a future that's rooted though in in historical awareness because that's the other problem i mean the right wing for decades refused to address the dysfunctions of its ideology so it let the poverty, right, um, fester. It refused to take care of the, the problems of religious conservatism and the class system. And the left has just refused to deal with the consequences of, of naive belief in total freedom, total sameness. And now it's kind of manifested into all the dysfunction we see from them. So look, that's, that's drifting away, though, I think, Stuart, from this idea and notion of practice. You think of things, man. Some really good things. Yeah, I know, but you do. let me throw this at you and then you throw what you've got at me. So look, in terms of practice, um, there's so much that needs to go on, but I'm going to suggest that some of the key features have to be the disruption of our relationship with space and time, which is something Buddhism can lend itself to very well. Mm-hmm. Reorientating ourselves to a sense of history and future and not using mindfulness to live in a kind of inauthentic presence is key and one of the ways we can do that is by reinvigorating culture as something that's alive so looking at intellectual culture artistic culture but also the culture of our relationship with the natural environment both as something which is under threat but also as a a sphere or a space which is resistant to the digital it is all good stuff Um, the other thing i would say is that there's this really good Frenchman, another bloody Frenchman, these French guys. They're God, good. They're good. And the, the English, I realized when I came back from France that the English completely discount the French philosophers, the, the, their contribution to the world of culture. It gets filtered out. It's, it's really quite sad, actually. Yeah, no. Although if you look at Guy Debord and his group, the, the second biggest contingent of them was actually British. And the British contingent actually gave rise to punk. The Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaren. Was he was their manager, wasn't he? Was he was their manager? And even um, Damien Hirst, the artist. No, he was, no, he was not their manager. Oh, well, McLaren was, yeah, but yeah, not yeah. Keith Ford. <laughs> Keith Ford was the manager of the Sex Pistols. I've learned something profound and life-changing today, Matthew. Thank you so very, very much. It's absolutely been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just to say that the British have always had a kind of um, ambiguous relationship with the French, right? Well, yes, so, uh, this guy's name is Marc Alger, or Orgy, and I think he died this year or last year. He had two interesting conceptual tools that we can maybe pick up as practice items. One of them is non-places, and the other one is uh, supermodernity. What made me think about supermodernity is this, this idea of space and time again, because he said that, look, we're not really in a kind of postmodern age we haven't gone beyond modernity 
and there are some sociologists who also prefer the idea of uh, late stage modernity or or some kind of superlative um, prefix plus modernity. But he talks about it in terms of the excess of three things. He talks about it as the excess of time, the excess of space, and the excess of individuality. And by time, he means this idea of the present that I spoke about before. In terms of space, it refers to like the, the loss of distance. So the whole world is available to us. So of course, we've got these wars going on, but we've also got um, other wars going on in Africa and all of the problems of the environmental decay taking place from Peru to China, right to Australia. It's all, it's all with us. So that space is no longer there. And individuality, he talks about, again, in terms of alienation, but in terms of solitude, right? So we have an excess of alienation or individuality in which we are thrust back on ourselves in a way which we are isolated and we feel the kind of imaginary spaces with our own ego, which is partly what causes this narcissism. So if we were to think about practice items or practice tools, I think they have to respond to that. They have to respond to the narcissism of our age. They have to respond to a need to get out of like the allure of these, these, uh, sorry, these um, uh, dystopian utopian fantasies which have gripped the new left, but also these techno-dystopians. And we have to um, in, engage practices which allow us to deal with excess, and the excess, again, of time, space, and individuality, and replace that with something that could be akin to authenticity, but the authenticity or the wisdom I would say, Stuart, one, one answer, because I'm just thinking about it now, could be it's the collective wisdom or it's the collective knowledge of our species. That's quite a nice way of responding to the question of what I is agree. wisdom. Because the Buddhists don't get to tell us, right? Socrates doesn't get to tell yeah. us. They all get to throw their hat in the ring, which is actually a really nice non-philosophy. And then non-Buddhist practice, which says the great feast or the democracy of thought is Instead of trying to get to these like these single definitions of abstract things, we say, what has everybody said about it so far? And what can we do with the wealth of material that they have gifted us? You know, we've already been doing that in our conversation, right? With the different people we've been bringing into our conversation. But I would suggest that certainly from my perspective, Guy Debord and his, his offshoots, you know, they carry that spirit of fuck you which we shouldn't forget. The Generation Xers were also the, you know, the enactors of that spirit. Yeah. And fuck you is just individualism can exist, but it's an act of restating your engagement with the world as it is, which is not meditation, but it's practice or it's practice off cushion. And fuck you is I'm not going to be absorbed into the dystopian utopian fantasies of these nut jobs in Silicon Valley. I'm not going to get sucked into the utopian and dystopian, you know, fantasies of these uh, far left activists. I can take, you know, what they recognize and what I recognize as deeply problematic, but not get sucked into that dehumanizing world that they're inhabiting and they're creating for themselves in which they're depressed, in which they're out of touch with their bodies and with the physical environment. I can refuse the call of the, you know, the new forms of conservatism to try and retreat to some imaginary past which no longer exists. And I think certainly we need more rebellion, but not rebellion rooted in kind of childishness, narcissism, and then rebellion for rebellion's sake. We need forms of rebellion which are rooted in principles of, 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 of protecting 
and then um, reconnecting to our human our humanity as an historical force which has got us to where we're going yeah it's good it's good there's a few things i've i've got to say i've got to say on in reflection to that and that's with regards to the working out like the difficulties and the challenges and the just the just pointing at some of really basic stuff and you know so i'll start off with you mentioned Noam chomsky and you're talking about rebellion and so my mind's putting together there's a interview with Noam chomsky and zach de la roca from rage against the machine and hmm. that i know i'm not sure if you much like the map but there's something to that political edge they're clearly politically informed and the music's really doing it and there's there's a number for me it does and there are a number of other artists that do that too that's that's one thought that came into my mind the um second was i'm revisiting a show called billions by showtime and i'd given up on it the main character had been nailed he's running a hedge fund dodgy and he gets nailed by the um attorney general of new york and sent to jail and i was like okay that's the show you know i'm I'm not gonna i'm not interested in watching and then a friend said yes yeah, getting really good so i picked it back up like a bit of synchronicity the the guy that's taken over the hedge from hedge fund from this guy that's gone to jail is quote unquote i don't know hasn't got to the the, the twist if there is one he's basically a really good guy he just happens to have billions and it's it's a little bit distressing in some ways because they redo the office and like his right hand man's black. And then suddenly you end up with a whole bunch of black pictures in the background, which is fine. But what are they saying? And then it moves on from there, you know, like Nelson Mandela pops up in the background and, you know, there's a number of other people's. And then in, in the main guy's office, like there's the Dalai Lama's there. And I'm just like, hang on a minute, what are they doing with this? And the coach that's been coaching them to do all of the dodgy stuff that they've been doing with this hedge fund is then going and taking refuge and it's kind of what are they doing here like can they literally just take a big chunk of that and put that in the middle of the show and what are they saying and what do they think that they can do with that and what does that say with regards to practice or its malleability with capitalism you know it raised those questions for me and i'm not sure that it would for everybody that's watching that show i'm not sure i'll stick with it but you know i think it's worth mentioning um um, so systems with embedded wisdom and the potential for new societies. So new technologies make new societies possible, right? That could be the disruptive practices that you're talking about. That's already a form of engaged technology in terms of it being a practice or a praxis, as you said. In terms of building wisdom into systems, in terms of practicing in that way, there's Building wisdom in terms of restraint, in terms of a, you're talking about rebellion, you're talking about kicking back against a system that's very much doing its own thing with very little regard for the inhabitants of the planet. There's a tricky thing. This comes from Daniel Schmachtenberg. It's resonating. So it says building wisdom into systems is very difficult. And the reason, and you're talking about collectively rebelling back and kicking back um, in a necessary way is very difficult because of the Dunbar's number and the limits on tribe, right? So Dunbar's number is 150 people in a tribe, you know? And above that, it starts to split apart, starts to fracture apart because of the size of the human brain. And so what Daniel Schmachtenberger put forward on the table, and I actually really, really resonated, and I, I'm, I'm not sure if this is going to resonate, Matthew. I have a feeling that it will. 
is that collective wisdom and collective intimacy are deeply interconnected, deeply interrelated, and deeply intertwined. And so what happens if you go above that Dunbar's number? When we collectively move over and above Dunbar's number, which is going to be a challenge to what you're not as in an affront to what you're saying, but as, as a challenge to, to doing what you're saying, to making it a working praxis, is that moving over and above Dunbar's number, we move from wisdom and interactive relational systems and into dictatorial rule-based systems, you know, the, the thou shouts, thou shalt not. Thirdly, when the entire system will self-terminate without wisdom, because it will, because we're not looking after our finite resources or connecting with reality as it is without an intermediary of a screen, it raises the question, which you've partly answered, is what individual and collective practices can contribute? And again, how do we build wisdom and restraint into our system? So I came up with two models. I'm not sure that they're relevant. I'm not sure that that's relevant. What I did find, though, is that the only two models that I had are either going to be, and I have to be honest with this, are either going to be a reflection of my lack of exposure to alternative models, or it's a reflection on the lack of potential models that we have available to us. And I, and I have a feeling that it could actually, it, it's a possibility that it could be both. Mm-hmm. And that worried me. That yeah. worried me because yeah. it's like, hang on a minute, in 30 years or so of interaction with this stuff, to a greater or lesser extent, because I, sometimes it's been full on and sometimes I've been a bit more laid back about it. And that's kind of you know, the ebb and flow of it for me. I was like, so I've done all of this stuff about AI and I've only got two models. And one of them, well, I will show them. It's one of them is the, is the Earth stewards, they do conflict resolution, which I think we quite badly need, which feels to me that we're we're dissuaded and unincentivized with regards to actually doing a proper job with that, and we need it. And the other one is game B theory, which is the fact that game A is what we're currently involved with and currently doing and have been doing for quite a long time, and it's running up against the hard limits of itself, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I like Game B. I like the idea of it. I'm not sure. I haven't looked into it enough to be able to, to vouch for it. With regards to and bringing this back to practices, the, the things that came to my mind, how we work with this, I'll list them off. And Matthew, you do whatever you want to do with not only with recording with how relevant or not this is, but also with regards to your response, because I'm honest like that. So the insights that I had with regards to practice were... Artificial intelligence looks to be a profound challenge to both our sense and meaning-making systems. And that if we decide to ignore it, to refuse to engage with it, or by ignoring and refusing to engage with new technologies, we firstly, we lose our capacity to be able to interact with the evolving present. And we also lose necessary and essential capacities to shape our own futures. So we literally lose an evolutionary say in how things are evolving, right? When we imagine AI to be both a catalyst and an accelerant, that is also operating at the speed of any current given exponential curve, we're blind to understanding, right? That it's also a reality tunnel disruptor, reshaper, and unshaper. We're kind of being pushed into adapting and evolving. That's directly in terms of how we live our lives and how we practice. So insights that I had for this as well was, is that what, what are we going to need to do? 
what's a base level reality that we kind of that we can kind of connect into one way that we could possibly connect in through Mm -hmm. it's not the only way to connect in through it but maybe it's one way it's my it's my perspective on it it's a perspective on it and one of many because this is something sadly that we now have to work with I, i think it was it was sam harris that was saying something along the lines of artificial intelligence researchers and thinkers were looking at AI like it was going to be some kind of system in a box that was air-gapped in a room and not networked into anything. And they'd be able to say, well, what can we do with this? What threat does this have? What benefit does this have? What can we do with it? And then maybe they'd start to put some medical data into it, you know, scenarios or legal scenarios or something along those lines. But what they've just gone straight ahead is they've done, they've networked it in, they've given it access to the open internet and millions of people giving it feedback so that it can prove, oh, and they taught it to code as well, which is retarded. It's absolutely dumb. Like, why would you do that? It's absolutely fucking stupid. What are you, are you trying? Are they trying to unravel it on purpose? Because that's the kind of thing an idiot would do. These people are supposed to be intelligent. They're supposed to be smart. And- and that really makes me question, like, why would you do that? And, you know, maybe it's a profit and unenlightened self-interest. The insights from that that I got were, were working within the intense depths of uncertainty. This one's for you, Matthew, is that realizing that human connection is a highly valuable commodity because it will become that. And it already is that. Yeah, I question the, the use of the word commodity. Did I though? say commodity? You did. Let's call it resource. Yeah, no. Yeah, okay. We can rename it right? as a resource. It's human, connect- human connection is yeah. a highly, vol- highly valuable experience. It's like a raw natural resource yeah. Yes, yes. that is fundamentally exploited by social media, right? Which we kind of all know. Isn't it? Um, and in fact, the, the use of the word commodity is interesting because it goes back mm-hmm. to you know this, this whole lineage of, of, of thought that leads up to the present day, which is in part. Uh, informed by Marxism and its recognition that one of the great problems with the dehumanizing side of capitalism is that it commodifies everything. Mm. And another way of thinking about that, which I think is a good way to to come back to practice, is reification, right? which is another term that comes out of that tradition, which relates to what happens in meditation and the self and identity, right? which is we, we turn it into a thing. It becomes an object and in neoliberal capitalism we become commodities or rather we become cells we become subjects which are part of the economic system and its demands which is why people sell themselves on social media right and youtube and all of that yeah, stuff that makes sense that makes sense right i think one of the the strands which connects us back to the figures i was talking about is is that resistance to allowing ourselves to be well here's another way of thinking about it which is quite interesting as practitioners is that we live in a social context in which our relationship with each other is mediated through the economic norms of the the digital landscape that we now live in so if we look at the service economy as taking over increasingly in western countries right um, material products are no longer the basis of the economy. They are services, right? Or digital products. And therefore, you know, we are no longer just these cogs in a mechanical or industrial machine, but we are uh, data sets within uh, a machine of digital production, which produces a never ending 
supply and therefore surplus of digital content. Yeah, they take a market into, can't they? Exactly. So if we think about resistance to that, part of that spirit or the punk ethos is fuck you. I'm I'm not going to allow myself to be fully subsumed into an economic system in which everything about me is a product which is sold and marketed, but also socially sold on interconnected networks through social media in which I present myself as one of the good people, whether that be on the new left or the conservative reactionary right or religious extremists, whether they be, you know, part of Islam or conservative Christians in America, you know, going for uh, reversing women's rights. All of this is a form of coercion in which our experience of being a, a person in the world of being is mediated through the digital economy. And it's, it's insistence that we not just turn ourselves into commodities, but we, we digitalize our entire sense of being into a commodity which feeds the system. So practice is fine, but as you well know, a lot of Buddhism ends up being a kind of a service practice to the economic system and the neoliberal ideal of the individual, which self-exists. But I, I, I would even go so far as to say that part of what our conversation just reminds me of is that we need a new vision of what religion is in the 21st century. And religion has a bad rap, but, you know, mindfulness is simply not good enough. Spirituality is such a funky word. It's, we, we need something bigger because part of what you were talking about is wisdom and constraints. Well, the only thing that, that provides constraints is either material reality. Traditional religion, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's it's a morality structure which is institutionalized and rooted in a vision, right, of togetherness. Yeah. And since we all recognize that most of the old religions no longer provide that for in a meaningful way, or they do so in a dysfunctional way, I mean, to me at least, I, I think we need an, an immense amount of revolution. We need an economic revolution, we need a political revolution, we need an artistic revolution, and we need um, a religious or spiritual revolution that, that's interrelated. Sorry, an imaginary revolution. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, no, no, absolutely. No, not an imaginary revolution, because that's an imaginary revolution. It's not a real revolution. My wording's wrong. Hey, you're talking about, yeah, no, you know, you, 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 you're, you're there. You're an saying imaginal need... revolution, maybe it's better, not an imaginary revolution. We need a real revolution. Or we need to revolutionize our capacity to imagine something far more than what we've got, right? right. That's, I think that's what you're trying to say. Right. So I think I meant, I meant commodity in terms of, like, it's rare. It's going to become, if we're not careful, it's going to become rare. Right. Right. I meant, that's how I meant I yeah. meant it was, you know, it's not something that's tradable, bought and sold. If it goes the way that people think that it's going to go in, then it's going to become difficult to find and source. So the depression and the, the you know, the, the body dysmorphia stuff that people get from social media and the, you know, the bullying that kids get through it and, you know, the, you know, the, the hijacking of our of our limbic systems, of our nervous systems, and the dopaminergic systems. If that's the way that people are interacting with reality, and that's if that's the shape that it's going to be, then actually people, if it becomes more addictive, then people aren't going to be unplugging. And so finding genuine people to communicate with that aren't just talking about their social media feed or some kind of predetermined bullshit is going to become a very rare thing. 
right? There's also the the skills of cultivating skill sets of adapting, transforming, and reinventing. And I mean reinventing in a good way, you know, not in a not in a false way, but you know, in a, in, a, in a way that moves people towards deeper meaning, deeper sustaining structures in their life and relationships in their lives. Yeah. And also in terms of being able to survive and keeping the jobs that we have and staying relevant and a pace of things is understanding the necessity of adaptive future proof skill sets. And that's not, you know, that's not at odds with what you're saying with regards to, uh, was it Gideboard? You know, that's not standing in opposition to what you're saying there. And that's, even though it's maybe a resurrected skill set or a, uh, a reimagining of something that's already been put down, it's still the ability to be able to recognize that this is actually like the punk ethos. Maybe that needs to be redone. Maybe we need to, maybe we need to resurrect that one. Um, mm. You know, I, I wouldn't mind that. I think that'd be a pretty good thing. There's a lot more I can say, but, you know, it's... it's... What we've done in part is we've had a great feast conversation. Yeah. And if ever there were a way for everybody to, in a sense, trust their own instincts, their own humanity, it would simply be that each and everyone out there trusts their own instincts and known humanity and take that as a jump-off point for exploring these questions without getting sucked into dystopian or utopian fantasies, and without getting sucked into like narrow focus in which the way they think about these topics is limited to a very specific ideological take. You know, part of what I think we all need to do if we're going to be more intelligent, I don't know if it equates to wisdom, but more intelligent, is resist the temptation to be sucked into the kind of uh, rules about what we can and cannot think according to one tribe or the other. So I always resist that. And the second point, I think, is, you know, pick up, pick up what, um, you know, Francois Laroel gifted us, which I, I continue to think he's the most important philosopher alive today, because he provides us with a means for disrupting all of this dysfunction that we've been speaking about, because he says, you know, the, the core problem is that all of these positions of thought is the decisional matrix and the sufficiency that they get trapped in and the kind of enchantment which they uh, provide for their followers. You know, if anything, we live in an age of digital enchantment in which people are seduced into signing up to very, very, you know, superficial ideological stances on extremely complex issues. If we were to have a kind of form of collective wisdom, I would say it would be rooted in multiplicity. Uh, but multiplicity has to be rooted in uh, a saner relationship with, with time and space. And non-philosophy or non-thought and non-practice, I would suggest, are two of the great gifts that this century has produced so far, which are quite distinct from previous um, centuries. And that actually represent part of a, a fitting set of intellectual but also experiential practices for thinking the world that we're part of. That's what I would end on. And I would just say, you know, is there a final point you want to add before we, we close? Thank you. It's, a, it's good to talk to you like this again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me back on. Mm. It's a complicated subject. It's interesting to bring this to the table i was wondering how it might fit together with with the direction you've taken the podcast in the, the main thing 
what does this all what does this all mean? Matthew, what does this all this mean? <laughs> uh listeners, write in. Tell us what it means. <laughs> Somebody here. Uh, what, what does it all mean? mean? Give us some wisdom. I've got one. I've got a really interesting bit from listening to uh, Mark Andreessen on Joe Rogan, and that was that Jim Morrison's dad was the head of naval operations for the Vietnam War. And I was like, you're kidding me. Um, uh, I didn't know how I was going to get that in there, but I needed to. Sometimes what we assume is the way that things are isn't necessarily the way that it is. What, why I wanted to talk to you, Matthew, and why, I wanted, why I'm really grateful to be able to sit down and have this conversation is really because this is it's an accelerant and a catalyst as far as i understand it and it's and it's an accelerant and a catalyst that could really catapult us in a direction that isn't to our best interests mm-hmm. you haven't got to be a technologist to understand this but I, i've got a tech background so i kind of don't have a problem with being able to jump in with it and most people don't understand technology it's just the thing it's on their phone it does what it, it does what it does and they haven't got much understanding of either their own privacy with the thing or how it's shaping their experience or what it's doing to their neurophysiology, how it's siloing them into echo chambers and all of these things. And AI has the potential to accelerate that. You know, just the near term, you know, let alone beyond whatever the hell the singularity is. It comes back to that that thing from 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 Jonathan Rosen, where he stuck out for me, Matthew, which is that our imagination is limited by the imaginary. For me, that seems to be the leverage point. Where, where do we get the crowbar, and kind of where can we leverage? Mm. Okay, that's a good uh, good point to finish on. Yeah, the invitation then is to listeners is to try and imagine beyond the obsessions of our yes. age, right? Yes. See, see what you can do, and it, maybe that's a final note to add to what you've just said which is it unfortunately or fortunately always comes down to us right we've we've all got to do this you know i thought my mum might do it (laughs) really yeah well hmm. good luck with that (laughs) (laughs) good luck with that anyway we'll get to we'll get to talking about our our problems with mothers in the next episode of the imperfect buddha podcast Send in your horror stories Please. about your mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, thank you for listening into this long trip down memory lane. Thank and, you. You know, this glance towards possible futures. And we'll catch you next time on the Imperfect, Imperfect Buddha, Buddha, Buddha podcast. podcast. This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else, perhaps to your favorite podcast. The other one, of course. Huh? Anyway. I think it's right that you do so. I do so myself. And it needs to happen really in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this. So some of my favourite podcasts, well, they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones, like this one, are usually put together by 
hardworking, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So give something back today, folks. Give something back. Secondly, well, as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. I offer coaching, support, mentoring, and guidance to those taking, well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism, waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc., etc. Any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too, and it seems that other folks are too. Three options, coaching, Buddhist-style practice and engagement, and the shamanic stuff that, well, a lot of people seem to be rather curious about, to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon, but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website, imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need.